featuring interviews and commentary from Animal Rights Zone, the online social network for humans who seek justice for other animals. You can find us on the web at www.arzone.net. I'm your host, Carolyn Bailey. In today's episode, Tim Guy and I are pleased to welcome back to AR Zone, Professor David Nybert. David is Professor of Sociology at Wittenberg University and the author of Animal Rights, Human Rights, Entanglements of Oppression and Liberation, which was published in 2002, in which he makes the connection between the exploitation of other animals and the exploitation, mistreatment and violence against other devalued groups, and his new book, Animal Oppression and Human Violence, Domestication, Capitalism and Global Conflict, which has just recently been published. David connects animal rights theory with other economic and sociological theories and believes that speciesism is an ideology that seeks to legitimise animal slavery, perpetuating the oppression of other individuals based solely on their species. David, it's always a pleasure to catch up with you. Thanks for being with us today and welcome back to AR Zone. Thank you very much, Caroline. You're very welcome. David, could you please give us a brief summary of the thesis of your new book? Well, I guess it revolves in part around the, um, the process of domestication, uh, which was a, uh, a word uh, that I fashioned to replace uh, the old worn out and ideologically latent term uh, domestication. Now we're taught early on that in school that domestication is a good thing and it was good for humans and other animals and it helped humans on their upward way. Um, so it's a, uh, uh, it's really, uh, however, a distortion of history because when people begin to capture and enslave um, and exploit other animals, uh, it, um, it quickly um, resulted in uh, the uh, mistreatment of devalued people, uh, contributed to violence and, and warfare, um, primarily because uh, horses, you know, once they were domesticated, um, and, and I guess the origins of that word, just to digress for a minute, uh, I, I guess I believe that you know when animals were captured and enslaved and exploited and over time biologically manipulated, it was a form of domestication. So, um, so I guess that's the basis of the uh, term that I seek to replace domestication uh, with the word domestication, uh, as other animals were desecrated. But their uh, domestication. Uh, soon led to um, uh, uh, elite, uh, primarily elite males, uh, garnering you know, large uh, numbers of domesticated animals, and then that required a great deal of pasture and water to sustain them. And then also uh, domesticated horses uh, were used over time as instruments of war. And then that launched uh, roughly um, several thousand years of widespread warfare, uh, warfare and violence, originally in Eurasia, and then over time that spread to uh, the Americas, Africa, and, and the rest of the world. And the implications if, for other animals have been just horrific, but um, their oppression has been deeply entangled with human oppression um, you know, throughout the centuries, you know, up, uh, up into the 20th century and then up into the 21st century, their domestication is actually connected to some of the most um, uh, critical issues facing the world today. So I guess, uh, in essence, you know, I'm uh, challenging you know anyone um, who is concerned about 
uh, injustice, uh, the treatment of animals, uh, concerned about the environment and uh, trying to uh, live um, in a way that uh, will leave something for generations uh, who follow us on the earth, uh, that uh, we should cease all exploitation of domesticated animals and try to begin a movement that fosters uh, a global plant-based diet, as I believe that's the only way that we're going to forestall some pretty serious um, uh, violence and conflict in the future. Thanks, David. Just so that our listeners can have a sense of how your thoughts about the entanglements of oppression have come about, could you please explain the theory of oppression that you use in this book and also in Animal Rights, Human Rights? Yeah, in the um, first book, Animal Rights, Human Rights, um, I was prompted to write that book in part because I'd noticed that a lot of literature on um, animal rights um, and a lot of uh, movements trying to um, to improve conditions for other animals tended to suggest that um, we needed to change people's minds. Um, I guess uh, there was this thought that people were prejudiced against other animals and that we had a problem of um, of uh, uh, problematic uh, uh, ethics uh, that we needed to basically uh, deal with people on, uh, uh, psycholo- on a psychological level and we needed to change their minds about other animals. But um, I think social scientists and others with the sociological uh, training, you know, realized that, uh, uh, that the oppression of, um, of devalued groups, whether it's people of color, whether it's uh, women, and in this case, uh, other animals, that there are structural causes, um, and primarily they are economic in nature. So the the theory of oppression basically suggests that uh, that all oppression is is motivated uh, by uh, by economic uh, economic gain. And it, but in order to carry out that oppression, there has to be enough uh, power and force you know, for a group especially of elites, to exert their will. And over time, their control of the state gave them that power. So, uh, But then they need to justify and rationalize and, and naturalize the oppression of other animals, so they need to exert ideological control. So the theory of oppression basically suggests that uh, if we want to uh, fight oppression on all fronts, we need to realize the underlying economic motivation how the power of the oppressors is um, is deeply embedded in the state, and how uh, they exert tremendous ideological control to make uh, people around the world think that this treatment of other animals is natural and necessary. Uh, and I think those of us, you know, who have looked at this uh, issue in some detail, have seen how the oppression of other animals, and uh, and the, ma- the vast majority of people on the earth, uh, particularly devalued people, indigenous peoples, have been deeply entangled. Uh, that is, uh, for example, uh, the more land and water you know one takes you know to to increase the the numbers of, of um, domesticated animals under one's control, who, who they'll sell their their flesh and their skin and their hair and other body parts for profit. Then you know over the centuries you know devalued people have been forced off their land. Uh, there have been acts of genocide, acts of displacement. Uh, people have been enslaved. Um, and put to work in many cases, you know, taking care of the animals uh, who the elites, you know, um, displaced them with. So I guess uh, that was the basic thesis of animal rights, uh, human rights. So um, in this new book, I'm basically 
carrying that thesis through, but uh, looking uh, in more detail at the uh, process of domestication uh, specifically and how uh, rather than being a, a boon, you know, for humanity and carrying us forward and uh, uh, being the basis for human civilization, it's actually corrupted uh, civilizations around the world and, uh, and may well be um, uh, the undoing of the world if it continues. Thank you, David. David, in the book you talk about pastoral societies and agrarian societies, and you just mentioned horses. And mm-hmm. um, I think in the book you you mentioned how the word pastoral kind of calls to mind some um, you know, bucolic sort of scene in people's uh, imaginations. But when you talk about pastoral societies, you mean societies that used horses in the ways that you just outlined, right? Horse, so they were the aggressive use of other animals, particularly horses, in order to consolidate the power that you were just talking about in the theory of oppression. Is that right? Yes. Uh, you know, pastoralism you know, has this... Um as you suggest, you know, this it solicits uh, solicit, uh, notions of, um, you know, of sunshine and, and, uh, and green fields and peacefulness. But uh, actually, um, pastoralism has actually been uh, quite a violent and conflict-ridden uh, practice, whether people are, are enslaving large numbers of cows or horses or pigs or goats um, they need uh, they need enormous areas of land to graze those animals, and then they need you know, to um, expropriate you know uh, water supplies. So it is quite uh, it's quite the opposite of being something that's peaceful and tranquil. Actually, uh, pastoralism um, is has been throughout history and continues to be you know linked you know, to um, violence and deadly conflict. Right. So at the same time, though, you're not suggesting in the book I I don't want to sound you know uh, elitist or arrogant but I I I think most people recognize that most of us myself included when we read something we tend to read quickly and we tend to compress the ideas that someone like you has spent a long time writing into a you know into a into a long book and we try we we tend to take away something that we try to put into one or two sentences and I I wonder if there's a worry from your perspective, that someone might come away from your book thinking that there was a time when all human beings lived without exploiting other animals, and it was and it was the 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 evil um, people who decided to use horses and other animals that somehow corrupted the rest of us. And if we could only get back to that garden, so to speak, everything would be okay again. Do you? You're not making that claim, I don't think. But do you do you do you think there's a danger that people will come away thinking that you are making that claim? Well, well, actually, yeah, for most of the time that we have existed on the planet, um, you know, we lived in relatively small groups of forage of foragers. Uh, we were our, our diets were largely plant-based diets, and I, I think you know for thousands of years you know, we lived in cooperation, if not at various degrees of harmony with other animals. The, the hunting that went on uh, um, for a long time was probably, you know, natural predators, perhaps like lions or, or tigers, you know, maybe uh, you know, looking at members of our species. But I, I expect for the most part that those events were few and far between. But um, for most of our time on the planet, you know, the animals that we ate were the animals that uh, we found dead along the, that 
uh, while we were foraging or we or scraps, you know, from uh, natural predators. But it seems like, uh, oh, I don't know. Uh, it depends on which historian or anthropologist you look at. But one could say roughly 50,000 years ago when humans began the process of um, organized hunting of other animals, particularly large animals, that seems to be a key point in human history um, that changed uh, this, our early societies, which were largely egalitarian, um, societies in which you know, men started developing weapons uh, to go out and kill animals, and then over time those men uh, began to exert a growing social power a social hierarchy began to emerge, and amongst other things, the value of women began to decline. So I think our organized hunting of other animals throughout the world had a negative effect on human societies. But then I think we really then went wrong in a major way uh, when humans began to domesticate other animals about 10,000 years ago. Um, again, because those animals uh, were, were viewed as valuable economic entities and intended to be those powerful elites that assumed control of those animals. And um, as they were exerting economic power, you know, they assumed uh, they treated animals as property. They began to treat other, uh, they began to treat women as property, valued peoples as property. But then, uh, especially, you know, with the uh, domestication of horses and men, you know, getting on their backs, horses became the primary uh, military weapons of the day. That's when we began to see an enormous level of widespread violence and warfare, again, in Eurasia initially. And, of course, you know, we didn't see that um, in the Americas, for example, because in the Americas, large uh, animals like uh, cows and uh, horses, um, you know, those uh, animals had been extinct for a long time, you know, probably in part from overhunting. So even though there was violence and warfare in the Americas, it tended to be small-scale skirmishes and raids, and nothing like the massive genocide that we saw in Eurasia. And again, all that was enabled and promoted uh, by the, the, the uh, domestication of um, large social animals. This is a, a really complicated um, question, isn't it? I mean, when we think about, you know, you mentioned 50,000 years ago, and, and from what I've read, um, it's suppose that something approaching modern human um, culture, modern human living, um, started about that time, maybe 70,000 years ago in some places, because they find evidence of things like jewelry made from beads and whatnot. But anatomically modern human beings, it's now supposed, came on the scene about 150,000 or maybe 200,000 years ago. Obviously, this isn't an exact science yet, but, you know, it's supposed that that's when the, when the biological organism, Homo sapiens, was on the planet. And then, but human culture with things like language and so forth didn't emerge until sometime between maybe 70 and 50,000 years ago. So I'm wondering if this entanglement that you're talking about, it's, 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 it's just part and parcel of what we are, as it were. In other words, there wasn't a change that came about in human beings so much as this is just what human beings do. Is that fair to say? I don't think so. <laughs> I, I think that assumes that there's something about uh, the human animal that, it, that in our nature that is responsible for violence and warfare 
and and the world as it is today and and I don't think there's any evidence for that i I think that you know for most of our time on the planet we didn't exist as we as we do today. You didn't see uh, this uh, widespread oppression of women you didn't see um, you know uh, people wantonly uh, killing each other and you didn't see genocide people were primarily um, uh, uh, egalitarian and uh, and people uh, shared and and there was very little evidence you know of any uh, of any large-scale or significant violence between groups of humans so that speaks I think to the true nature of human beings um, uh, to the extent that or who was it the the philosopher Locke I think suggested you know that we are kind of blank slates and and to some extent, you know, we can be programmed like a computer. And if the software that we're given, you know, to, to use a rough metaphor, is if we're raised in the society where the structure of that society and the reality of that society is, is one of peace and sharing in which, you know, violence is, um, is not accepted and it's a rarity, then you know, people accept that and they conduct themselves accordingly. But I, I think... In today's society, because there's so much violence and so much warfare, there's a tendency to look back on our species and to assume that this is our, the way that we are naturally, um, uh, when, uh, when I don't think the evidence is, uh, supports that at all. We only saw the atrocities and genocide and the exploitation of humans and other animals developing uh, when it was possible to do so in large part uh, uh, when it was enabled by human oppression of other animals. So I, I guess I would disagree with those who basically say, you know, this is the human condition and this is who we are and what we are. I think who we are and what we are today is a result of the past 10,000 years uh, in which human cultures have been debauched and corrupted by this widespread patriarchal-based violence promoted and enabled by animal oppression. So that it seems natural today because it has been the basis of our culture for um, uh, several thousand years now. But uh, I don't think uh, – I think if we could wipe the slate clean, begin tomorrow, and uh, have a different structure of society, that one that was emphasizing peace and sharing and cooperation, uh, we'd see a different type of human nature emerge. David, given what you've said about the entanglements of oppression – do you believe that the only solution is global veganism? And if that's the case, could you please speak about how it is that global veganism may have prevented, for example, something that you speak about in the book, the hunting and the slaughter by Europeans of Australian Aborigines? I think even when we look back to, um, to uh, early uh, ancestors of our species, um, uh, I, I think there is evidence that uh, they may have consumed, um, you know, scavenged animals, um, uh, scavenged uh, uh, body parts of other animals along the way. Um, they live primarily on plant-based diets. So you know, I, I can't say, you know, for certain that there was a period in our history when, um, you know, when an entire society was vegan. But what we do know today is that it is possible you know, for societies, you know, to live uh, vegan diets. And uh, uh, there simply, you know, have to be a, um, 
a knowledge of, of mixing, you know, certain plant-based uh, proteins, for example, um, uh, and a, a little knowledge of nutrition. But then you have some, uh, some earlier societies, the societies in the Americas, for example, you know, knew how to do that. So, uh, so if, we, if we had been a vegan society, uh, you know, from the get-go, if the animal oppression hadn't occurred, then there really would have been little reason you know, for all of this violence and warfare for uh, nomadic pastoralists to rampage across Eurasia, you know, trying to find uh, grasslands and water to, um, you know, to, to uh, keep all of these large numbers of uh, domesticated animals going. Uh, they wouldn't have been invading all of these other societies and killing and enslaving people. And then when colonization took place, um, beginning about the 15th century, uh, it could only it only occurred because Europeans were able to um, uh, to oppress you know, horses and, and cows and sheep and goats uh, to use them for basic subsistence. You know when they were uh, launching themselves into Africa or the Americas or in Australia. Uh, but then uh, again, the body parts of those other animals and uh, were valuable commodities. So then that just spurred. Uh, warfare and uh, displacement in Africa, in the Americas, and, and uh, in Australia. So, you know, Britain wasn't vegan, in print, and, and one of the primary um, uh, uh, industries in Britain, you know, was the textile industry, and they relied heavily upon the, um, the hair of sheep. And I, I think the fact that Australia was targeted as, a, as an important supplier of sheep, if Britain could take control of Australia, and import sheep uh, from that uh, from that colony, and they didn't thus have to import sheep, you know, from other nations. Then that was a boon for the textile industry. So um, uh, Australia, what happened in Australia, you know, is a variation of what happened in the Americas and what happened in Africa and what happened in New Zealand. Is that you know, the large areas of land and and supplies of water uh, began to be taken by um, uh, colonizers and uh, early entrepreneurs, you know, a lot of them, you know, had, were, were, um, uh, they were the agents of wealthy investors, you know, back in Britain and, uh, and other imperialist countries. And, of course, you know, indigenous people or people anywhere are going to resist the taking of their land and they're going to resist uh, displacement, they're going to resist um, enslavement. So, you know, the, the tragedy, you know, that happened in Australia um, uh, all of these you know, people being murdered and displaced and devalued, you know, for the taking of an enormous area of land, you know, not just for sheep, you know, but for cows as well. So, you know, if you look throughout the world, you know, so many uh, indigenous peoples and so many landless peoples around the world increasingly being pushed into, you know, to giant to metropolitan areas around the world, while so much of the land, you know, that they once occupied or they could occupy today you know, is being used uh, to um, uh, to uh, you know, produce you know enormous numbers of domesticated animals that fuel a number of, of industries, not the least of which is agribusiness and the food industry. And you know, today, of course, you know they're seeking to double the consumption of animal products by 2050. So this terrible pattern of the past um, has continued into the present. And the future doesn't look good because as they seek to uh, to uh, double the production of animal products by 2050, um, 
you know, the world only has, uh, has a diminishing supply of fresh water, only about 2.5% of, uh, of the water on the earth is fresh water. Um, uh, and, and an enormous amount of that water, you know, while half the people in the world are living in water-stressed areas, an enormous amount of that water, if not the, the bulk of it, is going to raise domesticated animals so they become food for the, uh, for the affluent. So it's not just water, but there's a number of resources uh, that are being rapidly uh, uh, used up and, uh, and pollution, uh, you know, water, is, water that's not used up, for example, is being polluted you know, by the growing numbers of, of factory farms. You know, so we're just kind of hurtling toward this, um, toward this environmental apocalypse. Um, uh, so uh, in the short term, you know, uh, multinational corporations can continue you know, to, to expand and grow and increase their profit margins because you know, more people are, be, are eating burgers and related fare. So um, you know, what happened in Australia and the continuing implications and effects of that you know, are, are, can be traced to a large degree to the process of domestication. Thanks, David. Along those lines, um, if, for example, palm oil is considered vegan by many people, but the production of palm oil displaces, exploits and kills both humans and other animals, does this point to how complicated all of this is? Well, uh, Certainly, there should be campaigns against, you know, uh, palm oil production. But I, I, I guess I would, I would suggest that if when you compare the destruction um, uh, tied to the uh, to the production of palm oil, and you compare that to the uh, to the um, historical and ongoing of violence and, and destruction tied to treating other uh, other animals as food. Uh, I, I think we'd be way ahead of the game uh, if we can get uh, people uh, to, fo you know, to focus, um, at least in many cases, as much on uh, it, uh, the process of animal oppression as, as some are on palm oil. So yeah, it's, it's a, environmental destruction is a complex issue, but I guess I would suggest that the, um, the animal industrial complex is probably and it's probably you know, the most destructive force on the planet at this time. And um, we're moving into a future where, you know, countries like the United States and Great Britain, uh, they, already, they already see the uh, finite resources um, being used up and they're, positioning, they're getting themselves in position uh, to lay claim you know, to the uh, remaining supplies of fresh water and arable land and remaining oil. And of course, they all know that global warming is, is uh, going to exacerbate, you know, this whole terrible situation. I, I think, you know, a lot of people know that back in 2006, a scientist uh, associated with the United Nations uh, Food and Agriculture Organization stated that raising other animals for food was responsible for about 18% of global warming. Uh, but um, a couple of years ago, scientists associated with the World Bank of all organizations, the World Bank has been a pretty, um, it's been a, a powerful tool of the elite for years. Environmental scientists associated with, with the World Bank said the, the use of other animals um, in the production of food is actually responsible for as much as 51% of greenhouse gases. So, um, so I guess I'm going back to say that countries like the United States and Great Britain, for example, 
who see uh, finite resources being uh, used up and they see global warming uh, leading to um, uh, all these uh, uh, droughts and, and floods and, and wildfires and, and rising temperatures, of course, they re reduce crop production. So they, they see uh, food shortages coming that uh, in the United States, the Pentagon and CIA, you know, are already, they've got reports out projecting uh, the relationship between the Western diet, um, uh, global warming, and, and resource depletion and they're preparing military responses. So this is why I say this violence that goes back 10,000 years that has scarred human history, that has, um, relating back to Tim's question, has basically um, uh, scarred uh, human cultural and social development to the extent that we now think that uh, this uh, violent and predatory way of life is actually somehow human nature, that uh, unless we can somehow uh, get a handle on this and of course one of the ways that we do that is try to you know try to uh, develop an, a movement an urgently needed movement for um, a transition to a global vegan diet then you know, I think the future is going to resemble the past and I think uh, you know we can't let that happen thanks David um, toward the end of your book you speak briefly about opponents of so-called factory farming promoting an end to so-called factory farming and you write that um, you believe that to be counterproductive. Could you please elaborate on your thoughts about this? Yeah, well, I, I think, you know, factory farming is horrible and, and should be stopped. Uh, and I think use of all animals for food you know, it needs to be stopped. That's what we need to do. But I, I think the problem is that um, some people, I think, uh, um, who are um, – uh, advocates for other animals, and a lot of people on the political left, um, they've embraced this idea of sustainability, you know, which is good. And uh, there's been um, authors like uh, Michael Pollan, for example, that suggest, um, you know, uh, he acknowledges certainly that factory farms are bad for the animals, they're bad for the environment, they're, they're bad for human health. But, in, but rather than telling people that they should resort to um, uh, uh, plant-based diets basically are suggesting that people should uh, eat local, that people should uh, try to purchase, uh, um, go to uh, places uh, that uh, foods are somewhat more expensive and purchase uh, local uh, organic um, uh, free-range products um, and that uh, somehow um, you know, this is going to be the answer. Uh, and, uh, and there's other folks that think you know, that um, – you know that if we can basically help, we can help animals by increasing uh, the numbers of chickens in in battery cages, or or we can um, maybe make the process of marching animals uh, through the slaughterhouse somewhat uh, less traumatic. Uh, that we're that we're doing a good thing. So, uh, regarding those two points, um, I, I think as long as the more educated and sensitive and and conscientious people on the planet continue to eat other animals. Um, uh, well, then everybody, you know, why should not everybody partake, you know, if, if the more affluent and educated are going to partake? So it simply means that, for example, the, the, the university where I teach, uh, there's, uh, there's members of the faculty who recognize some of these issues, but uh, they buy, uh, they develop the co-op and they continue to eat chickens and cows and turkeys and pigs, uh, but they're getting them at a higher price, you know, from some uh, local dealers, um, uh, 
uh, while the vast majority of people in the community, you know, go to the big supermarket and they they'll buy, you know, the uh, the cheapest um, fare that the animal industrial complex, you know, can provide. So so this isn't really moving us along in the direction that we urgently need to go. Uh, it, we simply uh, and, and even if the world were more egalitarian, there simply isn't enough land you know, to raise the enormous numbers of other animals uh, that would be necessary to feed uh, not just the people in the more affluent nations who are eating them, but uh, now that they're trying to double consumption by 2050, you know, there simply isn't enough land to free range, even if, if that level of oppression was acceptable to some people. So I guess what I'm saying is, that the belief that the free-range um, grass-fed animals is somehow more humane and is sustainable and that's the future, that's just an illusion. Uh, it's basically, again, the more fluent people can partake and perhaps avoid some of the hormones and antibiotics and other chemicals that are applied uh, to animals on factory farms. But again, the vast majority around the world will be consuming those products. And if the more, again, the more fluent and educated are going to uh, continue to consume animals, then uh, you know the level of consumption is just don't, going to grow, and we're not getting anywhere. And I also think that um, again, those advocates who are you know promoting you know larger cages or more um, humane slaughter, for example, um, uh, I think um, you know within a capitalist society, any law that, that or, or or legislation that comes along you know to to support uh, the masses of, of humans or in this case other animals. Uh, that they can be easily turned around. In the United States, for example, there is um, legislation uh, pending in Congress uh, that um, all the uh, state-based uh, animal welfare uh, laws you know, simply be scratched. Um, so, all, so all of that work, that you know, is, and it's uh, debatable you know, whether or not it, it really affected any significant change. Some people suggest it only made people feel more comfortable uh, eating other animals. That, um, uh, but even when they came up with those modest uh, welfare uh, changes, uh, you know, with the, you can simply uh, get a, a conservative uh, legislature and and the state or federal level who can simply you know, erase that over time. And and it's not just with animals. I mean, we've seen that with social programs, both in the United States and and throughout Europe, for example, hard fought programs that, you know, when the capitalist system runs into trouble, then they begin turning back retirement programs, education programs, and the like. So um, I don't think I've uttered uh, the word capitalism so far, but I think, a, a, uh, you know, people who really want to see a sustainable, just world needs to realize that domestication uh, both enabled the development the, the uh, development of the capitalist system, and now the capitalist system is driving domestication, is, is driving the increased consumption of other food. It's uh, destroying the environment. We're depleting all of these resources. So those of us you know, who are trying to work for a better world need to um, try to uh, work toward the uh, uh, development of a movement for a global plant-based diet, but we also need to realize that we need to work hand-in-hand -hand with our brothers and sisters you know, who are challenging the capitalist system. Uh, we'll never be able to um, uh, develop a justice for humans or other animals as long as a voracious, destructive capitalist system uh, continues to dominate the world. David, I, I agree with pretty much everything you just said. I think even setting aside most of the issues in regard to advocating for an end to so-called factory farming, just 
the logistics of of thinking that we would be able to free range other animals that we continue to eat. It doesn't make sense. Yeah, you know, Carolyn, it seems like you know privilege is something hard to give up. You know, and mm. uh, you know males, you know, continue you know, to uh, to exploit to women, and and they're and they're really reluctant to give that up. And, and people without color, you know, continue to live. Um, uh, lives that are substantially better than, than people without color, and they're very resistant, you know, to give up uh, that privilege, especially when it comes when it may, you know, come to uh, and should come to a look at the allocation of uh, resources. And uh, and I think you know people, you know, like the Michael Pollans of the world, you know, who want to continue to eat other animals. Um, it, it's you know when you can lay out you know this this kind of illusionary and fairy tale. Um, uh, a line that, you know, we can all live sustainably and we can feed the world and we can free range and we can treat animals more humanely. I mean, they're not looking at it very scientifically or very deeply or historically. Uh, and exactly. But, of course, they don't have to because no one's going to challenge them. So okay. that's why that's why within the United States, you know, the, the New York Times, for example, and the New York Times Magazine can continue issue after issue to put out this dribble, but because no one challenges it's just like the emperor's, you know, wearing no clothes, but everyone's, you know, reluctant to say anything about it. And and when some people like myself send something to the Times, it never appears in print. So, and it's just to come back for a minute to the capitalist system. You know, the capitalist system is promoting all of this, but it's also um, uh, thwarting, uh, or it's a huge obstacle toward developing change, and. Um, uh, I, I think this happens in part because, um, first of all, you know, the, the corporations that control the mass media, so just as we're talking about, you know, the New York Times will continue uh, to, to feign a concern uh, about the treatment of other animals and a uh, awareness of um, environmental issues, you know, but uh, they don't look at it in, in much detail or the depth that it needs. Um, but uh, so, but then people turn on their TV, and here within the United States, and like every other commercial and primetime TV, is is a fast food organization, you know, plying plying their wares. So when people see that, and after the ne- one generation and the next generation, it you know, it's a powerful ideological force, you know, that naturalizes the oppression of other animals, and they don't hear you know, alternative voices uh, that are talking about. Um, uh, you know the, the mindedness or or ability of other animals to feel pleasure and pain. You know, they're not uh, they're not hearing anything you know, that uh, is, is uh, converting other animals in their minds from objects to, to subjects. So anyway, the capitalist system exerts this profound ideological control to keep people from asking the questions or getting aware. Uh, and then the cap, you know, and then the powerful corporations and the wealthy. You know, they they basically dominate. Uh, state and the federal government within the United States. So, you know, our democracy in the United States and like nations is is pretty much a joke. Um, you know, people are uh, invited out to vote, you know, once every couple of years and then they're sent back to the mall. Uh, so, and then, you know, but then we get these, uh, all of this legislation that continues to expand and promote, uh, in this case, the oppression of other animals. But then as the capitalist system melts down and people be, become so stressed and focused on trying to get by day to day that it basically doesn't leave them any time you know to call, to cultivate uh, the, the knowledge and um, 
and actions you know that would be necessary you know to be an active uh, contributing citizen in society uh, so the capitalist system is rigged so much that it promotes all of this all of this destruction and all of this all of this oppression and then but that oppression also i think involves you know the masses of people in capitalist society uh, who um, uh, the, they suffer from a profound lack of democracy from ideological conditioning and then they're they're kept on their toes constantly trying to you know, to pay the bills and uh, pay the rent and, and buy food uh, that they really don't have time to become citizens. I agree, absolutely. I think it's it can be a very complicated issue, and I think that there's there's so many people that um, don't realise that there's all of this is happening. Um, but I, yeah, again, I agree with what you just said. Yeah, they, they don't see anything about this on primetime TV, do they? I mean, exactly. <laughs> Right. I, uh, yeah, we need to try to foster a reality show that, <laughs> that, that show this 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 type of reality, <laughs> like a Big Brother show. <laughs> right. <laughs> David, would you say that uh, activists for other animals ought to focus um, more um, on the broader economic situation than 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 on animal issues? I mean, if it's the case that it's a structural problem. And I agree with you about that. Then, well, if it's a structural problem, then I think that that ending factory farming changes the structure, and I think that that in an, I think that would be a good thing. I don't, I don't, I don't see, I don't see campaigns to end factory farming in the in the same way that you and Carolyn do. But um, that's another that's another issue. But would we be better off focusing on the broader economic problem? Um. I think you know if we're able you know to bring about um, enough change that we can set uh, the world and humanity on another course, uh, it, it's going to be a long process. And I think, unfortunately, um, you know we're going. To, I, I think you know we're going we're going to see a, a lot of people uh, becoming aware of what's going on because of the continued meltdown of the system and then realizing that the way things work don't meet their don't meet their needs anymore. So, um, but at the same time, I think you know all of those people you know who are advocates for other animals, they continue uh, to need to do that, uh, you know, to try to um, enlighten and uh, get people sensitive uh, to the uh, treatment of the other inhabitants of, of the earth. And, uh, but I, I guess what I suggest that um, they need to begin, however, to cultivate their relationships and. And uh, mutual activities, you know, with the people on the political left. And at the same time, that's, that's when I talk to people on the political left, I uh, point out that uh, human rights is deeply connected with animal rights, and a lot of the issues that they're working for uh, also are issues that will lead to the, um, uh, uh, you know, if, if we make some progress, they're they're tied to the uh, alleviation of animal oppression. So. Um, I, I guess you know, I, I would like to see animal advocates you know, become much more sophisticated uh, about the, the role of economics. I, I think um, you know when I spoke about a year ago at a conference, one person stood up and, and said, you know, we're fighting animal oppression now. We have to take on capitalism too. Uh, and, and of course, it, it seems um, it's an immense, enormous uh, uh, job that is hard to get our head around. But I, I think we need to realize, as, as, as you uh, said, you know, that we're dealing with you know, deep 
uh, powerful structural forces uh, so that animal advocates need uh, to realize that, you know, the capitalist system uh, is not benign. It's not promoting the interest of the vast majority of, of the inhabitants of the planet. Uh, it's, it's not the best system. You know, they've been raised and programmed to think it's the best system in the world. And they need to realize that it is deeply tied, you know, to the oppression and exploitation that they're seeking to end. So I guess, Tim, I'm suggesting, you know, don't stop your advocacy for other animals, but, but uh, look for ways to link hands, you know, with those on the political left. Okay. And would you outline um, what you um, mean by democratic socialism. You offer that as a replacement for the sort of capitalism that, that dominates the world today. Can you talk about what democratic socialism looks like and what conditions on the ground would have to be like in order for it to happen? Uh, that's a complex question. <laughs> Um, well, I guess a, a big start, you know, would be here within the United States, you know, if, if we could get, you know, people to get behind a proportional uh, representation, uh, you know, system that, um, uh, that, uh, are, that operates, you know, in um, a number of countries in Europe. That is here in the United States, you know, we have uh, uh, you know, 50, uh, 49 percent uh, could vote for a Green Party candidate and 51% could vote for the Republican, the Republican gets a seat, and the 49% that voted for the Green Party candidate or the Democratic Socialist candidate, they've got no voice. Um, but in a system of proportional representation, as many listeners know, if 49% of the voters vote for a, a Socialist candidate, then 49% uh, uh, of the uh, Parliament uh, you know, would, be, would represent, would be uh, uh, Socialist candidates. But so here within the United States, uh, we have been profoundly stymied and even getting some of the modest um, uh, changes in uh, social uh, programs, uh, for example, not the least of which is uh, national health care, you know, because we've got the system of uh, representation that basically you know, serves and always has served the primary interest of elites. So uh, if we could – and the United States, of course, has exerted you know, tremendous uh, uh, power around the world uh, – uh, not just economic and power and ideological power, you know, but for decades, you know, countries, um, you know, that have uh, attempted you know, to break away from the capitalist system or get out from under U.S.-backed dictators or vote for socialist or more progressive candidates, uh, they've been evaded and invaded and undermined and um, had war uh, waged against them by um, by the United States or or forces backed by the United States. So the United States is, is probably the most powerful obstacle, you know, for change in the world right now. Um, but uh, so I guess one of the things that would need to happen is we need to develop proportional representation in the United States and try to get the United States from being um, uh, such a, a powerful obstacle for change. But then a, a more democratic uh, socialist society. Um, uh, just a, a couple of rough ideas doesn't mean you know that uh, you know, that nobody can own their home and somebody's going to come in and take their iPod or their TV or that people can't smart can't start businesses or that some people don't have more money than other people. A democratic socialist society would simply be a society that is characterized by a significant democracy and that you know corporations and wealthy in, uh, wealthy individuals basically you know, couldn't control uh, city councils or state legislatures or 
or the federal government, and that the mass media you know, would be uh, democratically uh, controlled. We'd have many more public stations or community stations so that people would begin to hear uh, you know, what's really going on both in the United States and around the world and amongst other things, you know, um, of what the consequences are and have been you know, for thousands of years of the oppression of other animals. Um, uh, but I, I guess I see uh, democratic social society being characterized by economic uh, democracy, media uh, democracy, and, and movements to end violence of all sorts. Uh, and again, it doesn't mean that um, uh, you know, some people uh, wouldn't be wealthier than others, but it does mean that uh, everyone would have access to education. No one would, would be going hungry. We wouldn't have homeless people. Everyone would have access to health care. People would be able you know, to, um, to, try to, um, you know, to try to self-actualize and become the best people they could be, and in the process would become better citizens, not just of their countries and of the world. And then if we had a summit of, of truly democratic nations around the world, um, then I, I believe that we could um, you know, begin to get the issue of animal oppression on the table. And that's why I think we don't want animal advocates you know, to stop doing what they're doing, because if we get to that point, you know, we need the animal advocates ready to step into those conferences and meetings and, and to make it clear uh, to those assembled you know, how um, uh, the, the call for a, a vegan plant-based diet is actually the only sustainable, rational, and moral uh, choice, you know, for the future. David, you refer to the speciesist thinking and attitude that underlies the wholesale exploitation of other animals by humans. Um, you also go to great lengths in the book to explain how devalued humans are equally oppressed for the sake of profit and wealth. When I define veganism, I think of non-harm to all individuals and a complete absence of violence wherever possible, but I know that a lot of people may not think that way when they think of veganism. I also find it interesting that the Aborigines were treated almost entirely the same way as, say, the kangaroos, koalas and other animals were treated by the Europeans with little thought that they were anything other than what they may have perceived as a lower species. Um, my question, I guess, is if humans and other animals are both exploited, oppressed and devalued and killed by those who seek power and wealth above all else, could you please explain how such thinking or acting may be speciesist? Um, I, I guess I talked about in, in my first book, Animal Rights, Human Rights, about what I call the hierarchy of worth. And I think other scholars, you know, have, have noticed this this process of this phenomenon and may have referred to it somewhat differently. But when someone, I think, gets in their mind, and I think again we can go back um, you know, thousands of years to those uh, you know males that begin hunting and then uh, exerting grower, growing power and um, and uh, developing privilege for themselves. Um, and I, I guess in order to mistreat others and exploit them, you have to see them as not the same as yourself. So when I think uh, humans began doing that to other animals, then we saw an early form of speciesism. They would go out and kill other animals and then um, uh, basically you know, rationalize uh, that to themselves, in part you know, that these other animals aren't human or they're just things and they don't count. Uh, but then when they find that they're 
that they can live more privileged lives and perhaps uh, um, have more possessions, uh, you know, based on the exploitation of uh, of other people. Then, then they begin to separate themselves from other people, and we see uh, classism developing, and we see racism developing, and we see um, uh, sexism developing. So I, I guess there's a, it's like a, it's a hierarchy, or I guess um, I've heard it referred to as like a, a skyscraper. You know that those on top you know, are living privileged lives, but then as you go down on each floor, you're going to find masses of devalued people, and then in the basement, you're going to find this enormous, you know, level of suffering and violence by other animals on which all of this other oppression is built. I think economically and and uh, politically and certainly ideologically. So I, I think yes. You know, um, if we can truly get it to challenge the speciesism, I think you know we may be well on our way to making true gains in the, in the uh, to challenge um, you know other forms of oppression. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, David. David, when you talk about the way that the world is going to change, you say that violent action can't be part of the solution. Why do you say that? Oh, I I guess. Um, a couple reasons. I guess first and foremost, um, you know, as, uh, as Carolyn mentioned, um, you know, veganism, you know, if you're thinking of it kind of holistically, is actually this, this commitment you know, to nonviolence, non-exploitation across the board. Um, so it, it's, I don't, uh, I don't think we could develop the society that we want, one that's nonviolent and, uh, and everyone has a right to life. Um, uh, if if we uh, take up arms in violence, you know, to try to get there, uh, it's just it seems like you know, we'll uh, we'll lose our our moral compass. You know, it's just um, I, I think you know we need to move you know in peaceful, nonviolent uh, ways to accomplish that peaceful, nonviolent society. And and then on top of that, um, the, the forces you know that exist to support the, the status quo. Um, are have enormous levels of, of power, um, er, everything from armaments to their ability to conduct surveillance, um, that uh, uh, they would be able to um, not only um, uh, undermine and, and subvert um, you know, efforts you know, to try to use uh, violence to change the uh, system, but then because of their enormous uh, ideological tools, you know, they could present um, those trying to change the system in such a way as violent terrorists, you know, who are challenging the safety and security of, of everyone in society. So I, I think it's not practical. I, I think ideologically um, it would be disastrous, and I think morally and ethically, you know, it's against everything, you know, that, that we'd be striving for. David, some vegans and animal advocates may um, be wondering why only half a chapter about fishes and other individuals who live in the ocean at the back of the book. Could you please explain why, if the problem is to be solved by global veganism, you um, addressed land dwellers perhaps in disproportionate numbers to fishes? Uh, I think that's a good criticism, and I guess part of it is in my own ongoing uh, education and, um, and and learning about the issues. So um, I guess uh, initially I wanted to focus on uh, 
how the uh, terrible exploitation of um, of uh, animals who live on land has been so um, has been so destructive uh, for the world and the development of human culture. But um, but actually, my next book uh, may go into much more detail because um, I've learned so much about how in Australia, for example, that um, you know uh, people who were um, uh, there, you know, out, uh, you know, murdering whales for profit, you know, also um, uh, uh, what uh, created a, a terrible experiences, you know, for um, indigenous peoples in Australia, as in other parts of the world. And, um, uh, and, and to this day, um, uh, you know, I, I anticipate some of this future conflict is going to be over waters, you know, where, you know, these, um, declining numbers of animals who dwell in the water, uh, you know, there's going to be conflict over, you know, trying to uh, murder them and put them on the plates of the affluent as long as, um, as long as some profit can be made from it. So I, I think it's a good criticism, and I think one that I'll have to address uh, perhaps in a new book that focuses uh, about on animals who live in water, you know, in a much, to a much larger degree. You mentioned about your next book. Could you speak a little bit about what it will be about in general and um, when we can expect to see it published? Well, um, I, I guess I've got two things in mind. Um, I've been working the last couple of months um, uh, on a, a critique of, of hunting. I guess, um, you know, uh, here in in the United States where I live, um, in the state of Ohio, uh, if, if you go to a bookstore, it seems like there's an enormous number of books there uh, about hunting. And then uh, about this time of year, the newspapers uh, uh, are filled with pictures and stories about uh, people going out and how many deer have been killed and how many birds have been killed and people get their pictures in the paper. And it's just horrifying. And, and of course, uh, you know, it's all it's all driven uh, uh, by money. There are enormous businesses, uh, you know, uh, selling people armaments and clothing and all kind of technical gear to go out, uh, you know, to, to kill a, a morning dove or whatever. So uh, anyway, I've started to look back uh, into history at the um, at the development of hunting and and to see how it has um, paralleled uh, domestication. And many parts of the world, and actually has um, uh, supplemented you know, the violence and destruction. And you know, as it continues to this day, and of course the armaments industry is closely connected, you know, to hunting advocates, and it's spinning out of control. So, um, and then at the same time, I'm, I'm also doing more and more uh, research into um, uh, the oppression of uh, animals that live in the water. So I'm not sure which one is going to uh, emerge first, but there are two things. Uh, <laughs> two things in production, so to speak. David, it's been an absolute pleasure, as always, to speak with you today. But before we say goodbye to you, is there anything that you'd like for our listeners to know that we've not thought to ask you about? Well, it's just, um, you know, it's going to be hard, I think, for some people to get their minds around that, um, you know, working to create, I think, larger battery cages or... Um, uh, you know, somewhat better conditions, I think, you know, for other animals you know, before they are murdered and uh, and put on somebody's plate. Uh, I think some people uh, believe that um, this will 
eventually you know, lead us toward uh, a time in a society where animals will no longer be oppressed. I think they see this as somehow of, of incremental change that will eventually lead to the end of oppression. But, um, but again, I, I see this as a similar illusion as, as uh, everyone in the world will, will be eating free-range uh, uh, animals at some point. Um, I, I don't. I don't. Uh, I, I simply see that uh, throughout uh, uh, the decades of people working on these modest reforms, that are, are in many cases um, they're, they're unenforced. Um, uh, and then when somebody goes in with a camera and they document that they're not being enforced, that those people themselves are now being you know, increasingly in countries like the United States, you know, charged with the crimes, uh, you know, for um, you know, for docu for getting in there and documenting, you know, the uh, horrendous treatment of other animals. But uh, but I simply think that you know, if people uh, will, will go to fast food or uh, places or, or other facilities and think, well, you know, these were humanely raised animals, or these chickens, you know, were free-range chickens. So it makes people feel better about eating them. So again, while that emerging number of, of conscientious people will continue, uh, you know, to um, enjoy that privilege of, of eating the, the flesh of these uh, other inhabitants of the earth. I, I think you know, simply the vast majority are again are going to continue you know, to eat you know uh, you know the cheapest fare you know uh, with little information and in some cases little concern on you know how they were raised and treated. So again, I, I think you know um, we need to turn our attention toward um, you know a, an abolitionist approach uh, to the uh, exploitation uh, of other animals and. Um, and, and all get be, and all become vegan, and to promote uh, and try to build a movement that promotes the global transition to a vegan diet. You know, for so many reasons, and not the least of which is um, you know, trying to stop the suffering of other animals. David, thank you again for spending your time with us today in AR Zone, and I'd also like to thank you for all the things that you continue to do on behalf of both humans and other animals. And and you and him as well. Thanks, David. Listening to AR Zone. Please visit us online at www.arzone.net and look for us on iTunes.